0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702, The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris, how are you doing? Happy Monday.
1: Happy Monday to you. I'm in good shape. And yourself?
0: I am fantastic. I had a wonderful, wonderful uh, weekend and... I just have, you know me, I always come to you with the interesting baby questions. Now, I went and did my own little reading. But before we we, we, we jump into the question I have for you, all of you that are listening, 11 double one double eight three oh seven zero two. your weird and wonderful questions for uh, Dr. Chris Smith. 31702 is where you can SMS and the WhatsApp line 72 So uh, the question, doctor, that I have is... You know, I've noticed there are a lot of babies on the internet that are terrified of grass, and my baby is one of them. You know, the first time he got put on the grass and he completely freaked out, he sees it and and his legs go up in the air. And now when I did the reading, they were speaking about sensory overload. And I'd love to get an understanding of what that actually means. What is sensory overload? Because apparently they haven't developed enough and it's too much for them.
1: I kind of have familiarity with this because i took my daughter when she was about six months old to the beach for the first time and she was really funny about the water on her toes and the sand and kept on lifting her feet up like a like a crab kind of yes, retreating literally pulling its legs up under its body yeah and and then but once they settle in they're fine i think it's just that it's an unfamiliar sensation to them and they're they're comfortable with the familiar and that means like the feeling of their mum and dad the smell of mum and dad, the temperature of mum and dad. And if you then put them into an environment where it's totally different, the ground beneath their feet feels different, the temperature is different, the sounds are different, obviously they're cautious. Because if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, if you are too exploratory, if you're too risk-taking, then you're going to get hurt. Whereas if you are more risk-averse, then you're less likely to get hurt. But if you're too far in the risk-averse direction, you might miss out on opportunities. So, I think we're programmed to be a bit risk taking, but not too much so and that's almost certainly going to be going to be present from the get go because it's going to have a really important protective role to play, especially when we're really little and very very dependent on other individuals to look after us
0: so the the sensation can I equate it if I'm trying to understand what sensory overload feels like? Can I equate it to what I experience with my tripophobia? Where looking at little holes gives me the heebie jeebies.
1: <laughs> I suppose so. Because in um, my
0: mind that's what I imagine he might be feeling.
1: Well the thing is that children's perceptions are very different, especially very, very young children's perceptions, very different to adults. And you can do experiments, for instance, with what they call a virtual or or visual cliff, where you put a baby on a sheet of glass which is transparent, and there's a big drop on the other side of the glass between, say, two chairs. Now, an older child might find that off-putting because they feel uneasy because they actually know how far down it is and they know that they might fall because they can see a gap. And a baby, on the other hand, won't have a problem with that because it hasn't learned to marry up the distance, the connection of if you fall, you get hurt, etc. So there are some things that children are very happy to uh, to do when they're very small because they haven't made those additional connections or interpretative connections in their mind. But there are some basal instinctive things primary sensations that they are more cautious about and often it will be things like sensation temperature and so on and, and that's where things like you know the grass or you know the funny feeling of grass under your feet or the temperature of cold water for example really sets them off
0: mm, that's such an interesting one. double one double eight three o seven o two three one seven o two for your sms's the whatsapp line oh seven two seven oh two one seven oh two all of your questions for dr chris smith Seven o two. The Naked Scientist. All right, we have got a call. We've got Freddie in Alberton. Hi, uh, Freddie. How are you doing? I'm good, and you? I'm good. I'm good. Go ahead. Good. Yeah, um, I just want to ask the question quickly. I'm I'm doing weightlifting, and I'm quite hefty, and I'm I'm got sort of muscles. But my worry is that does that mean um, my penis will, will shrink by any chance? Because there's this thing that when you're do doing weight, your penis will ultimately shrink. So I'm I'm
1: concerned.
0: Mm, that is a valid concern, Freddie. Doctor?
1: I didn't catch the, the bit of, it, the, of what showing.
0: So basically, he said that he's doing weightlifting and has muscles and he's concerned mm-hmm. about his penis shrinking.
1: Ah, uh, I know what he's getting at. Right, okay. Now... And we, we've lost him, so
0: for, we can't ask him any further questions. Yeah.
1: We just lost him. Yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. I, I get it. Um, when people go in for bodybuilding, some people resort to chemical assistance to do that. And what I mean by that is they use so-called anabolic steroids. Now, steroids, the word steroid just refers to the sort of chemical nature of the molecules we're talking about. And they come in a number of different types. There are anabolic steroids, which help anabolism growth. There are also other kinds of steroids that are involved in controlling your immune system and we use those for a range of diseases. Well, I'm talking here about the kinds of steroids that get used in the anabolic sense. They include testosterone and testosterone-like molecules because if one compares the stature of men and women, men have bigger bodies and a bigger muscle mass on average than women do and this is because testosterone has a growth promoting effect on muscles muscle bulk and therefore if you push up your level of testosterone you're sending a bigger growth signal to your muscles as well as other bits of your body and this makes you more muscular so there have been cases in the past it's well documented for instance in in uh, sport people have so-called doped themselves where they've used these chemical means to achieve a greater than normal physical strength because they've given their muscles a growth stimulus by administering exogenous steroids, anabolic steroids that you take. Now, why might this have an impact on your reproductive system? The reason for that is that the normal source of testosterone, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part in the body, are your testicles. And your testicles, as well as making sperm so you can make babies, also are responsible for producing testosterone. And they do that in response to signals that come from the brain's pituitary gland. So the brain is measuring how much testosterone is in the blood. If there's not much there, it says, release this substance, which travels through the bloodstream, goes to the testes and says, make more testosterone. If you inject large amounts of testosterone or testosterone-like chemicals into your body or you pop pills that have that effect, this goes to the brain and says... We're awash with testosterone. We don't need any more. And it turns off the chemical signal that would normally go around in the bloodstream and go to the testis and say, make testosterone. So the consequence is you can actually shrink your testes if you keep on taking testosterone like chemicals artificially. And that's where this idea comes from that you will end up with small bits because you have effectively made them redundant. And this is not a new thing. I mean, you can you can get the same effect if you take other medicines that replace one of the body's natural processes. The thing that normally does that process can shrink or atrophy as a result. Is it irreversible? Well, under certain circumstances, it can be, because especially if it goes on for a long time, it can be. So, therefore, the the bottom line here is there are many consequences and health side effects to taking these anabolic steroids. They're not a good long-term health option. They're not a good idea. And it's probably a good idea to avoid them and just rely on the fact that your body has evolved to have a natural shape. You can optimize that with good, healthy exercise. You will probably make yourself unhealthy if you take these sorts of things. So it's better to avoid them
0: all right thank you so much for that question i'm sure there are many men who have that concern but uh maybe a little bit embarrassed to give us a call but there is your answer when we come back i see your call and i see your whatsapps coming through 702 the naked scientist we are still with dr chris smith and we go to the lions vene in midrand hi hi Mm, go ahead vene good afternoon good afternoon uh dr smith I know that when you stick your tongue in, on ice, it gets stuck. But what causes it to remain stuck to the ice?
1: Hi, Vinay. The reason is that the ice cube is really cold, obviously. Your tongue is moist, and the surface of the ice cube may be well below freezing temperature for water. So when you first stick your tongue on the ice cube, the moisture on your tongue's surface... And also some of the tissue on your tongue surface will drop below the freezing point of water and you will form ice crystals, which are basically on the ice cube surface and then in the little nooks and crannies of your tongue, sticking the two together. Now, if you hold it there for long enough, this will drop below the freezing point of water and you will form ice crystals, which are basically on the ice cube surface and then in the little nooks and crannies of your tongue, sticking the two together. Now,
0: is there a possibility that it could be a skin issue and not a sexually transmitted issue?
1: It's very difficult to say without actually being able to make any sort of examination. Mm. I mean, another possibility is that you can get infections in the prostate gland and this can occasionally just the act of having sex because that contributes various constituents to semen, for example. It could be that there's an infection there, which when the prostate contracts in order to produce that fluid, actually that is causing the inflammation or that's causing the symptoms. So I think what's really needed is a trip to see a a urologist, someone who can look at everything and do a good examination and take a careful history to try to then marry up what is happening when and do the right sorts of tests to get to the bottom of it and hopefully fix it. But if it's something that's only there when sex is taking place, that's a good place to start because it must be one must be linked to the other. So mm. one can therefore investigate and find out what the cause is and then fix it. Because obviously, if if you know that um, this is going to happen every time, it means that you're not going to enjoy yourself very much.
0: Yes. Carla. I hope you are able to get yourself uh, to a your urologist so that you can get checked out. Let's go to David in Pretoria. Hi, David. Hi. Mm, go ahead, David.
1: Okay, no, I just want to know that when I'm trying, uh, especially when I want to be sexually active, yes, my mind says yes, I can go for it, but then my pen is low, I will go for it. So I just want to know that, uh,
0: is it advisable to use those things, you know, Viagra and so on and so forth? So, okay, you're a little bit muffled, David, but if I understand you correctly, you're saying when you drink alcohol, your body, you are ready, but your body is not ready. Is that what you're saying? Yes, not
1: ready. It doesn't rise.
0: Okay, Dr. Chris Smith, can you advise? The, I don't yeah, know uh, how this became um, a, si- a sex uh, science. It, it, it,
1: this is the, sec- the naked scientist sex phone. In yes, Right, well, the bottom line here is that this is classically known as Brewer's Droop. And it's when the mind is willing, but other bits of the body are less so. And alcohol is a depressant drug. And it tends to deactivate certain aspects and arms of the nervous system because it activates inhibitory systems in the nervous system. And one of the things it does is to affect the sympathetic nervous system, which controls erections. And if you inhibit that part of the nervous system, it's much harder to actually make bit of the body work properly, so really the answer is you're sort of telling yourself aren't you that if you drink this happens so the bottom line is better not to to drink too much. little bit is a good social lubricant, but too much, and you get mm-hmm. these consequences. The good news is that in the in the long term if you just if you just cut down, then you won't have a problem. If you drink chronically for a long period of time and do damage to your health, it can actually end up with long term problems both to your vasculature. And your nervous system, which will make this much more common, and also to your liver, which affects hormones and makes actually much harder to, to have sex at all.
0: So I will ask you next week, Dr. Christmas, about the second part of his question, which was Viagra, but we'll touch on that in the next week of The Naked Scientist. Thank you so much, Dr. Christmas.